What is it about? Computational communication science. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to a new episode of What is it about computational communication science? My name is Mario Heim. I'm an assistant professor for data journalism focusing on computational communication research. And today we have um, a highly important and very global question. The question is, why is today's data still not enough data? Hi, everyone. I am Emesha Domahidi. I am an assistant professor for computational communication science at Technische Universität Ilmenau in Germany. Today, we have an amazing guest. Tetsuro Kobayashi is joining us. He is an assistant professor at the Department of Media and Communication at City University of Hong Kong. He is focusing on political communication and public opinion among others in mainland China, Hong Kong, Japan and Korea. He does work with a lot of different types of online data like online survey responses, tweets, mobile communication logs, online news, news videos. So we have a lot of diversity of data sources. Hi Tetsuro, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. So Tetsuro, working with so many different types of data, what is that you are looking for in data? So yes, I use uh, different types of data. Most frequently I use online survey data and online experimental data, but these are not definitely enough to answer uh, uh, all the questions that we have in different types of communication research. So um, sometimes I turn to uh, Twitter data on social media, and in my previous studies I developed some specific you know, research uh, app uh, that works on Android smartphones so uh, to collect the mobile communication log and sometimes I study online news in text and image and some, uh, currently I'm analyzing the news video uh, without relying on uh, manual coding so different questions need different data to answer in a valid way so personally, I like data that clearly supports or rejects a hypothesis. And ideally, I prefer data that is as free of alternative interpretations as possible and leaves no ambiguity in interpretation of the results. So if, there, the, if, if the, the question and the data has a really good match, then we can more you know, uh, uh, precisely answer those questions without any uh, ambiguity. So I like those kind of you know, precise and match and consistency between the questions that we raise and the data that are used to answer those questions. Now, you said that you use um, survey data and, and, and experimental data, which is where you can control all the aspects of the data, of course. But you also mentioned using, for example, mobile log data or Twitter data, which is where it's not in your hands to determine what the data provides you with. So is this data that you get from third parties, such as Twitter or other platforms, really all the data that you need to answer the research questions? Well, sometimes not. So each the different data has their own kind of unique advantages. So for the Twitter data, I, I turn to those kind of data if I have a questions regarding kind of the long-term changes or the, the, uh, the, the large scale of the phenomenon. Because the data that we can get from surveys and experiments are oftentimes quite limited in their scales. 
Uh, so in any cases, uh, perhaps we cannot get data and a sample size uh, larger than like a few thousand. So if the scales of the phenomenon is quite large and, and if the real-time data collection is very important to capture some kind of trends and changes, I, uh, I tend to turn to like social media data, you know, observe, observation data, observe data on social media that can be tracked for longer time than uh, typical online surveys and experiments. But, but then again, if you, if you maintain your own app, you kind of control what types of data, what, what, what level of, of granularity you get. Whereas if you work with data where you need to rely on information provided by platforms and third parties, it's, it's not your fault also, but it's also not in your hands to, to estimate whether what you get is raw data, what you get is aggregated data, what you get is longitudinal or cross-sectional data. So you, or are you limited in the types of research questions you can ask depending on the subject of your research. Yeah, our hands are to some extent for sure tied uh, by the availability of data for sure. And there is certain kind of trade-off relationship between the, between to the, uh, the how, how much we can control the data generation environment and process and kind of ecological validity of the, the, the research setting. So, for instance, in the case of tweets, I, I used to run kind of field experiments. So, this is a really, you know, uh, ecologically valid situation. This is a field experiment. So, users just keep using, kept using Twitter as normally. And yet, I have asked them to follow a specific uh, politician's Twitter accounts to test the, the impact of following this, uh, a politician on you know different types of outcomes such as the knowledge level of that party or the liking disliking of that specific politician and so on so this is kind of a, i would say a compromise between our desire to control the the experimental setting and yet we want to do it in a more natural ecologically valid situation so of course we during the field experiment I did have zero control over what exactly that politician would tweet about right so it's completely kind of gamble if he doesn't tweet anything my experiment would completely fail but I knew that he's really active on Twitter so I just uh uh you know used him as an experimental treatment and yet I you know on the background I collected his old tweets and also used API to check if the uh, experimental participants continue to follow that uh, politician as instructed. So there's some uh, compromise trade-off between what we can uh, get and what we can control. And even if you start to get data, of course the question remains whether the data generation or collection process is transparent. So are the data uh, that we are getting kind of reproducible or are they open to other researchers? I think um, so for the survey and experimental data, uh, we are now quickly shifting toward the uh, so-called open science practices. So in many journals, uh, we need to submit the data and codes uh, that are used yes. for the analysis. But for those, uh, like a social media data, we are, I guess we're still in a kind of gray zone. For instance, a Twitter, uh, no, you know, in a more strict, strict sense, uh, Twitter doesn't allow us to publish or analyze the, the tweets data. 
so recently we have published a paper on uh, Japanese uh, tweeters. But what we basically, you know, published for the replication data is just a list of the IDs. So we did, so we of course didn't publish all the contents of the tweets because that is mm -hmm. not exactly in line with the Twitter's uh, data policy. So, but and yet, you know, we need to secure the reproducibility of our uh, analysis, right? So here's another kind of trade-off. So what we can do as a part of open science practice and what those platforms define as their data privacy policy are not always in, know, compatible. Yes, and while it certainly is a solution to publish the IDs, we of course do not know what happens if I try in three months or three years uh, to download these tweets, or we have at least good evidence that I won't be able to, to reproduce the data set. Yes, uh, it perhaps speaks to the level of the reproducibility. And in many of like a communication studies or political science studies, uh, in, a, in a strict sense, we don't have reproducibility because uh, the real political situation changes constantly. And even when we could do exactly the same analysis at time one and time two, perhaps the results may not be exactly the same. So that is very different, different from, like, for instance, the, the, the experiments in physics. Because it has to be completely re uh, reproduced and replicated. But in, in social sciences, we, don't, we, we perhaps cannot do this because the target of the analysis constantly changes. So that... Perhaps the situation is worse in a, in a kind of social media analysis. Was the I mean, the accounts disappear and they you know switch to private accounts. Obviously, even when published the ID list, uh, the those who would like to replicate our findings may not be able to do so. So is that a you know uh, the issue? Maybe that's the issue. But there should be some kind of mutual agreement between those who run the original studies and those who run the replications. Um, on to to what extent we should we should be able to replicate the original findings? Okay, so we're gonna you know, collect the data set again, and we run the same analysis, and then the results were somewhat different. Is it because the accounts were changed? Where is not, uh, or the, the 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 real phenomena that we are trying to understand has changed? That's very difficult to tease out. I guess. But it's an artificially introduced problem, isn't it? I mean the. the there could be other workarounds than Twitter just saying, well, you can only store the IDs and then you have to rehydrate the tweets from our uh, systems, from our servers. And if in the meantime something has been deleted, well, pfft, we don't care. So that's the current solution or situation, but that's not really a solution. I mean, um, as you said, we, we, we cannot then uh, tie back changes in the findings to a change in the data set. Um, or to a change in the actual phenomenon. And another solution could, for example, be that, I mean, Twitter could, for example, freeze downloaded data sets and allow us to get them again in the original sense, for example. We could discuss different um, policy situations um, where, where we would be allowed to at least store these this data and, and share it with other researchers. We're not talking about um, stealing commercial information from Twitter, but we're talking about research in a in a very um, relevant field of public communication so i think the the current legal situation there is well it's not so much wild west but rather a a very 
<laughs> imbalanced situation between us as researchers at the shorter end and some huge industry platforms at the, the longer end of balancing scale. Yeah, I think you were kind of uh, alluding to the, the potential negotiation between the researchers and the platforms. I think there are, there are certainly some possibilities in there. And uh, we have seen some signs of that. For instance, for the, the Facebook data, there was a platform. There, there is a platform, uh, Social Science One. Uh, I haven't tried it yet, but there is a kind of institutionalized way for the researchers to make a request. Hey, I'd like to analyze this Facebook data. And there should be some kind of review and negotiation, so on. And if successful, you'll be uh, able to have access, right? Now, of course, the, recently we have seen the news that those provided data were not really complete and transparent. So, of course, it's it's a very difficult and then a winding you know uh, road. But uh, to do so, I yeah, I I I think we should perhaps have a, you know need a really good coalition among the researchers. Uh, and in the case of Social Science One, of course, there were some prominent scholars like Gary King who could work as a bridge between academia and the, and the industry. Uh, so without that kind of uh, entrepreneurs, uh, it might be difficult because so we are kind of completely fragmented. Where I know the isolated researcher and the research teams work on you know collect Twitter data, analyze them only to answer their own questions. So they are not organized. And then, so if we are separated and isolated, we don't have any, mm -hmm. yeah, we don't have any bargaining power over the platform. Yeah, also, I think also because the platforms consider themselves technology platforms and not really being responsible for what they um, have available as data, which is a lot. I mean, Facebook has tons of data, which it isn't really willing to share with us, even through Social Science One, where in the beginning, at least, the selection of scholars being let in was very limited. And what they got then access to was also a very limited aspect or portion of the data, some parts aggregated, some parts left out. And as you just said, we recently found out that some of it even was not really actual. But so that, again, I think points to that dilemma between us as the small, as you said, fragmented, without any bargaining power, science or academia on the one hand, and then some huge organizations on the other that are sitting on a, on a huge pile of data we could work with, but we don't have access to. Right. And maybe Twitter is a better case than, than others. Yes. Yes. But one aspect of this is, of course, the question whether the data are ethical. How can we ensure that we have considered uh, yeah, ethical aspects in our data and data sharing? Can we make it anonymous, really, if we would uh, or share our data? So what could we do? Um, I'm not an expert in, in, in a kind of anonymization uh, techniques, but I know there are like a different ways to anonymize uh, uh, online kind of digital footprints, like a K anonymity methods and so on. Uh, I I was in a computer science institution when I was in Japan uh, until 2015. I knew some people were really hard working on that specific topic so so because people are starting to talk about open science open data that kind of things and in doing so they need to they really needed to, uh, a really uh, good ways uh, to anonymize 
the data. But I haven't seen since then uh, the real application onto this kind of social media data in our field. Maybe there's a really huge chasm or gap between those you know, computer scientists who are working on this anonymization and social scientists like us who are, who are the end users of that kind of data. So, well, obviously it may have, take some kind of time for those waves to reach our field, but I'm waiting for the wave to reach, but I haven't seen that. <laughs> <laughs> so. But while there is, while there is this, probably this gap between the disciplines, I also think there is a gap in, in, in culture um, in the sense that what, for example, Twitter considers ethical might not be the same as what European researchers consider ethical might not be the same to what different Asian countries or cultures or scholars con consider ethical. Have you stumbled over any differences in, for example, how Twitter approaches its data situation, how Facebook approaches its, its situation, and how, um, for example, Asian um, organizations approach it? Personally, no, but I have uh, heard a lot of anecdotes from other researchers that uh, the data privacy regulation has been tightened due to uh, uh, GDPR in European countries. And we have seen a lot of you know, like uh, permission to use cookies on, uh, from, from whatever the news, online news websites that we use, and they basically change these policies uh, due to uh, GDPR policy in, in European countries. So those waves are reaching Asia for sure. Uh, and then Twitter is uh, trying to be in line with those new regulations in, in European countries. But if we really care those uh, new regulations, I'm not quite sure. So because we people know that this is mostly for European uh, uh, people and European data. So, so long as we are dealing with, for instance, Japanese Twitter data within Japan, their you know, uh, GDPR impact is not so tangible at this moment. But we don't know. So that, that might be more global for sure in the future. So if that's the case, we need to comply with those global standards. But obviously currently, so different regions has a different standards uh, still. And then I guess European countries are more stringent on that point. So, so if you, you, you mentioned this app to collect mobile data, can you talk us through that? How, how, where, where do ethical considerations come into play there? Yeah, that was kind of wild west back then. It's more than 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, <okay>. and then, <laughs> and oh, that's interesting. I, yeah. <laughs> people were not so uh, you know, aware of the, the, the seriousness of the issue, uh, you know, when I look back from now. Um, but I, what I did is, of course, to go through the, the standard IRB process in my institution. And uh, as the institution that I belonged to back then was a computer, computer science institution. So uh, I, I, I needed to, so some computer scientists has a really high standard, which is not really compatible with what we can do as uh, social scientists. So I needed to kind of persuade them, hey, this is okay. And at the, you know, the, the participant side, I collected, I, mean, I recruited the participants from online survey panel. And of course I, permission so hey I'd like you to install this app and what this does is to collect the, the anonymized metadata of your mobile communication basically voice calling and SMS and Gmail was optional so we don't collect any of the contents like a text of SMS or, or contents of voice calling it's just that when and what time you made or received phone calls or SMS that kind of things um, so that's kind of a full disclosure before they make a judgment 
to, to, to participate or not to the study. How easy was it for you to find participants? It was not that hard. Of course, we needed to pay a lot more than a usual one-shot uh, survey or an <laughs> experiment because it's ongoing uh, data collection. And once they install the app, it you know traces back to the or the older stored information. So not only the data uh, created after the installation, it also collected the data that were stored at the timing of the installation. So the data set is of course much larger than the normal data collection. So I think I paid more than 10 times of uh, the normal uh, honorarium um, than usual. Yeah. Incentives need to be high. The incentive needed to be high. We are talking about the data topic, right? Because we kind of have the feeling that the data sources increase, that we have more data than we had before. But of course, it's not really clear what kind of data we have and why we have these data. So maybe we could just go through um, and, and talk about the different data types and why actually um, yeah, we can assess them and what might be problematic. You already mentioned survey data, which is, I think, still very relevant in our field. But of course, we cannot cover everything with surveys. Yeah, survey data is, I think, it's, it, it will continue to be a, a workhorse for communication study because it's quite straightforward we can ask questions and we can create questions and so long as that are relevant questions for, for our questions and for the participants and respondents we will be able to collect very valuable information through surveys but at the same time there are certain you know serious disadvantages uh, in survey data especially when we would like to study for instance media effects and uh, it's quite widely uh, uh, known that the measurement error is huge. So any you know, any kind of results might be possible simply from the measurement errors. Right? So yeah, so survey data is great. You know, for instance, illustrate how public opinion has changed over the decades. Uh, that's not possible with a single social media platform. It's just too young to track the changes over like 20, 30 years. But then national nationally represented surveys that are stored in many countries can be very useful to answer questions. So anyway, so there, there are some uh, weak points and disadvantages like measurement errors and like a sensitivity bias and so on. Uh, so we need to think about how to overcome these uh, uh, disadvantages, shortcomings. Some can be done on survey uh, paradigm. Others could be kind of supplemented with other types of data, like social media data. And at the same time, we see comparisons, methodological comparisons, that survey data has also surpassed some of its value, especially when it comes to media use. So we see that people answering survey questions about how often they use uh, the media or how what kind of news they use, that this information, it, it has holes, right? It has missings. People forget what they use because the episodes of media use have become uh, shorter. People simply uh, scroll through their, their feed on, on the bus, uh, on their mobile phone on the bus, and um, uh, forget that they did that and do not answer that in, in a survey. Whereas with tracking data, we can then complement for that. So I think there is, as you I totally agree with you when you say that, that survey data um, will still remain a workhorse for, for the communication uh, sciences or for the communication science, but it's in some 
areas it lacks exclusivity to some extent and can be and should be probably complemented with other types of data. Yeah, and uh, the, the huge shortcoming of the survey data on uh, media exposure is that it cannot tell much about what kind of contents they consumed. So it's just like, you know, okay, how often or how long the kind of things and okay, what exactly did you see or did you watch? And in many cases, people don't you know, remember those contents. So that is definitely the area <laughs> where uh, behavioral measurement would be more uh, valuable. So that's why the digitally traced data, like uh, digital footprints and behavioral logs, uh, we should do those kind of new types of data more um, deeply. Yeah, I guess the combination of different data sources is key here. That could be a, really a strong addition to what we have at the moment. But this is some, or this is not so easy because we do not really know what it means sometimes. So what, what is the difference? Maybe we have something like a perceived media use. So this is what I believe I use and this is more important for me versus my actual media use. That might be quite different, but which of those two is more important, for example, for my political attitudes? Yeah, that would be a very interesting question. Let's have some you know, the media exposure is a subjective experience, so, okay, so no matter how, you know, uh, precisely we measure media exposure, you know, how we feel about our media use might matter more than, you know, objective measurements. <laughs> then, you know, what's the point of, you know, spending a lot of effort in boosting the precision of the measurement. Again, I, I think it, it comes back to, to the research question you have, right? I mean, if you're interested in what people perceive, then asking them might be the actually uh, the, the perfectly correct um, approach. Whereas if you're interested in, for example, how um, Facebook personalizes your feed of information, depending on what news you use, asking people what news they used might not be the perfect approach. Yeah, yeah, I agree, Mario. <laughs> I wanted to defend myself here. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to. I, I referred more to, to, let's say, the classic survey questions, uh, right? Just report your media use. Uh, because I know from, um, yes, from some part of my research very well this difference between perceived and actual things. And, and that the, the actual does, is not always the most important one, for example, in social support research. Yeah. Okay, but what about experiments? Can we improve experiments or can we add more experiments to our research repertoire? I definitely think so. I was trained as a social psychologist, so experiments are quite, you know, the kind of familiar tools for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, some social scientists kind of rediscovered the usefulness of experiments in past like 10, 20 years. But for, for psychology, this was the original, you know, the most conventional tool to use. So there's nothing new. Um, and then perhaps for communication research as well. Um, so uh, like some areas such as journalism study, which haven't been you know, a heavy user of uh, experiments, there, but they can utilize this powerful like a causal inference mechanism, you know, uh, 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 paradigm to tease out and isolate the, the causal effects. Uh, but of course, you know, it relies on the assumption that we are interested in causal effects. I think in, in some, for some researchers, causal effects are not really the focus of their, their study itself. So that's, that's a strong assumption. Well, experiments are useful, uh, 
to make a causal inference. But the original research questions are not uh, on isolating a causal inference. Then experiments are not so much useful because it can, you know, it, it, it offers you a really uh, huge exp uh, the control over the data generation process, but uh, it certainly limits the, like, uh, validity of the context and uh, it's not always possible to run experiments to answer our questions for instance if you're interested in a kind of long-term effect of using a specific media um, in many cases we cannot run those experiments so uh, and of course there are always kind of ethical issues like I have seen some studies like you know asking some participants to stop using Facebook but that's only uh, that kind of study is only possible when uh, the participants agree to stop using Facebook. We cannot force them to stop using Facebook. So that would limit uh, the you know there would be certainly kind of selection bias. Those who agree to stop using Facebook can on, can can join the, the study. Right? So that would you know narrow down the research context that we can, can play with. So useful, but you know. Again, there are some limitations. I feel when it comes to experiments online, we are we as communication scholars are being involuntarily subsidized by the industry in that so much <laughs> in that um, well, not monetarily, but in the sense that companies like Facebook, for example, um, have their own research departments and they run experiments presumably a lot a lot a lot uh, presumably yeah. without all of the academic uh, ethical advisory boards presumably without pe having people consenting to it um, we saw these in in, in recent um, revelations but we also know from from earlier approaches in that regard and not only from from facebook and I, my my impression is that this really um, there is a, a kind of an, a negative halo effect on research as a whole if these these experiments in, in, in quotation marks um, um, are those that are talked about and reported. That is might be kind of similar to the survey studies, you know, when when the like a direct marketing email, targeting uh, direct mailing and marketing surveys flourished. Those like junk, junk surveys and junk marketing surveys, uh, academic research are kind of seen as the same thing, and they, they hated to to respond to those you know, surveys, and the response rate dropped. And now you know more and more people realize that oh, Google and Facebook, those big you know, tech giants, are running a lot of experiments. We are kind of guinea pigs, and then, so what's the difference between those experiments and academic? Experience. From the viewpoint of the users, it's not so different. So I don't know. So I, I really don't have a, you know any answer how we can differentiate from them. And then we need to we need we need a help from those you know, tech giants to run experiments. And we cannot say, hey, we are different. We are better than them. And um, yeah, that would be very difficult. I remember this in the beginning when I start, when I kind of started to um, think about computational social sciences and so on. I always thought, or I, I always read about the possibility of having massive online experiments. And I thought, this is super amazing. That's what we are going to do in five years. And now we know, of course, we are not going to do this 
at all <laughs> easily. I mean, there, there are very few examples. Um, and obviously the companies can do this. And if, if we do online experiments or what we do nowadays is that we kind of make our experiments uh, yeah, available in a, via a prolific or Facebook or whatever, but maybe more prolific or Amazon Mechanical mm. Turk. Yes, we, we, we are not sitting in the lab that much. So maybe that's the biggest difference for researchers. And for for uh, participants, as you just mentioned, I think the difference isn't that obvious, which is which makes it even harder for us to get them as participants. So I remember a recent study where we we did um, want where we asked people to install a browser plugin to collect some information, and it was very hard. The response rate was very low. It was very hard to get participants, and some of the comments in we had a comment field, a common text field where people could um, send us their comments, um, was that, well, why don't you ask Facebook? They have the data. And and that was, uh, okay, it, 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 it was touching and hard for me emotionally <laughs> to get over, over such comments because we don't get this data, but the peop these people are absolutely right because what we try to collect is really what is available just to other organizations. So that's kind of uh, the hardship that we all experience. If we are really interested in the real um, social media platforms, so of course there are the, you know, other ways to go. If you have any uh, research questions that can be answered without relying on Facebook or Twitter, you can create your own digital experimental platform. Right? It's like like uh, the, what the paper by Salganik and others testing the effect of cultural market, they created their own platform, mm -hmm. like music market, to see how, you know, uh, like a ranking information affect people's purchasing behavior and so on, right? So that is, they didn't rely, you know, have to rely on Facebook or Twitter to run their uh, experiments. But if we really interested in what Facebook uh, uh, can, can, can uh, have on, on, on its users, how uh, Twitter's uh, communication on Twitter uh, impacts people's perceptions and opinions and others, then we cannot run away from these real platforms. Right? So we need to have... <laughs> so that's, that's, that's a really hard point, I would say. And, and yeah. since for a lot of people, these platforms are their main channels of communication, I, I think to some extent we cannot run away from these platforms. We have to, to some extent, do some research. Research there, but you're right in that they also provide us with different measures. For example, we we can rely, for example, on popularity queue data, numbers of likes and stuff. This uh, data we get from these uh, platforms. Although we, I think we still try to figure out <laughs> in the field what what to make from these numbers. What does it really mean if somebody leaves a like or not? Um, and um, at the same time, we also have some public social media data we can access, for example, tweets and retweets from given people. We just cannot get into people's individual's feeds. So I think there is this differentiation that um, is usually argued with, with privacy reasons um, where we can get some information, but not everything. So that's, yeah. A dilemma that we have to figure out to some extent. Yeah, I would agree. So that's a huge point of uh, like uh, social media studies, computational social media studies. You know? So there are different kind of cues, popularity cues, and others that we can use, like number of likes or the retweeting behavior. What does that mean? You know, 
uh, in light of our kind of theoretical arguments. Number, number of likes might be how interesting the content is or how popular that the, the poster is. Retweet, you know, many people put on the, the social, I mean, Twitter profile that you know, retweet is not the endorsement. But the, the reason, the exact reason why a lot of people mention that is that many people believe that, you know, retweet is endorsement. So obviously there might be you know at least some people who retweet because they endorse those the, uh, uh, postings and messages. So different people you, you know retweet for different reasons for sure. Then you know if we're just looking at the retweet, that's a really important part of social uh, media communication. But so what is the construct validity? So what does it represent I mean, as, a, as, a, as a theoretical construct? So that is really uh, a thing that we need to think deeper rather than just, hey, we could get all these, you know, um, digital footprints, which is great. But what does those indicators mean is another question. Super, super important point. So data are not enough. We, we want them to uh, analyze some of our concepts or we maybe with these new types of data we need to reflect on our theories and concepts and include something like popularity cues for example in our theory of human communication and that's of course uh, difficult and again i think that's a cultural thing as well it's different countries have been working with social media for different numbers of years and have a different approach to what a like means, have probably learned a different experience of what um, various popularity cues means. We've talked about, a lot about Twitter and, and Facebook and, and Google so far, but I mean, there are also other huge giants in, in the tech industry. Can you tell us a little bit about how the giants essentially from, from mainland China handle and work with different types of data? And which popularity cues they provide? I think, well, so as you know, the China has its own version of like Twitter called Weibo and it has a kind of super app called WeChat. WeChat has everything. It started as kind of instant messaging app like Line and WhatsApp and so on. But now it's way more than that. It, so without WeChat, I don't have a WeChat account personally, but uh, if I were to live in mainland China, definitely I cannot survive without WeChat. So that like a payments, you know, bank transfer or, or, or like more uh, uh, like procedures, administrative procedures like a tax and so on, residential records, all these things uh, now can be done on, on WeChat. So which means all those, you know, digital uh, behaviors are tracked by, by Tencent, which is a, is a company which runs WeChat. I don't think any, you know, I uh, can't think of any other like super app like, like WeChat, which collects that huge amount of data sets in other countries. Uh, even in Asia, like in Japan, uh, Line is very popular as I am. Uh, Kakao Talk in Korea, uh, Line again in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, WhatsApp is very more popular. So it is a, each country, each society has its own you know, dominant I am. China is, 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 I would say, qualitatively different from other countries in terms of the scale and depth of the data that are collected as a single company. And, and that company is in close collaboration with the government. So maybe that's not imaginable in European countries. 
Uh, so as, as, as Mario said, that there's a huge, huge cultural difference uh, in terms of people's acceptance of this reality. And Chinese mainland, most of the Chinese mainland people don't care much about it. That, you know, their, their, their transactions, digital transactions are collected by a single company and it can be utilized by the government at any point of time. So concept of privacy itself is culturally contingent for sure. And yeah, most of Chinese users of WeChat, they don't really care about the fact. They know that they are, they're, they're, you know, uh, online behaviors are all tracked, but they don't care. You said the company has the data and the government might have access to the data. And how about researchers? Researchers, if you have a good connection with the government, you can, you can get access. It's completely, you know. I would say, based on personal networks. I have seen a very interesting social network uh, analysis. So for instance, in, in, a, in a Western countries, many people are interested in how information propagates through uh, so, uh, social media. And then they utilize social network analysis to see what is the patterns of the information propagation, uh, you know, uh, whether this is a rumor or misinformation and so on. Uh, but I have seen in uh, a, a study uh, run by a mainland Chinese scholar, they are more interested in, in how to cut the spread of the information. Well, well that may be similar to how to uh, you know, um, cut the spread of misinformation. But I was curious about the data source of that study. And then I asked the researcher, hey, uh, I have a question. How did you get this data or how did you get access to this data? And then that scholar uh, basically told me that he had a, a, a close collaboration with, uh, with the authorities, security authorities, and security authorities was interested in how to curtail the spread of you know, information that are not um, uh, welcomed by the government. I mean, for instance, the call for the protest. So the, the, the government at any level, like a local government or a central government, they want to curtail and prevent those messages calling for some collective action uh, spread through the people. So they are they're more interested in not to how not not in how to spread the message, but but more in how to cut the spread of the message. And then doing so, they are they give them limited access to kind of selective researchers. It's not completely transparent or open process. So they you know handpick good scholars and give access to those people. So if you if you if you're completely outsider like me or you, you you will never get those access. But that's not only about social media data. You know, in any science like a political science, some people have really, really uh, you know uh, good access to like a government data, but that is not a published data. And then in many cases there are kind of info, informal negotiations or connections through which they can get access to those data. Uh, you might heard of some people trying to uh, crawl the WeChat data, um, but you can only collect uh, public channel data. So there is a discoverer in the uh, University of Hong Kong who is collecting uh, WeChat data. The project name is WeChat Scope. Uh, so he publishes on the website. Um, that is okay and that is technically doable, but of course that's only a limited part of the WeChat communication, the public channel. 
So you basically to have you have to share the research interests of the government and you have to be willing to do research uh, yeah together with them or at least uh, for the topics they suggest to really access the data. That is my yes observation. Yes. Yes. And and that's uh, that's my guess because I'm outside that loop. So what I can see uh, of course my observation is limited. Uh, it's it's just a personal observation, but from what I can see, uh, those uh, access to the, the massive data like collected in the Chinese social media are not publicly accessible, and yet there seems to be some people who have access to those data. So the access to those data are not institutionalized, and there might be some kind of you know, informal uh, negotiation or bargaining out there, which are not observable from outside. So in in either case, be it in in, in, in corporate um, organizations in, from the US, for example, or in um, governmental organizations in, in, for example, mainland China, um, we as researchers have to deal with the fact that we have research questions, highly relevant research questions, and there is a pile of data that could potentially answer, help us answer these questions, but we don't get into that. Right, yes, that's, yeah, unfortunately, Many cases we don't have access to those very valuable data. So what should we do? <laughs> I mean, you mentioned that uh, you could, for example, collect from outside um, WeChat data. We have seen similar things with Facebook, with um, with with also with Google histories, where people donate their their own histories of Google usage to researchers. Um, which then entails a whole bunch of, of legal aspects and, and, and privacy and ethical aspects, of course. Um, well, again, so what we can do depends on which context, cultural context, or, or in which country we run uh, a study. So if, 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 we, if we're going to do this in a, in, a, in a free society, then you might want to set up your own social media. That might be one way to go. Right? And... Well, so like, uh, you know, prolific was established to, to, to help the academic research in a data collection. Right? So, so in other words, they set up a, the, the academic version of an online survey company. Then why not for social media? Well, so that, that, that might not be easy for sure. Um, <laughs> but if we can, if we can run something very interesting, at least to like, I would say, I don't know, um, 20, 30,000 people, then we have full access to all the information. Probably a call to join forces more. So are we, are we announcing here the call to collaborate uh, with all of us, uh, establishing this new social media? One way to move forward could be to turn that from an individual's project into some sort of infrastructure where others could work with as well. And there are some projects in that regard available um, at the moment? So, yeah, uh, again, so I think a scale matters uh, in terms of the negotiation with those platforms. For instance, in the, in the case of American National Election Survey studies, uh, they, they now merge with the survey data, high-quality nationally representative survey data with Facebook accounts where available. Right? And then that 
uh, was realized because there was a strong connection between Stanford University and Facebook in, in, a, in a Bay Area. So a lot of like you know uh, PhD students in the political science department or communication department in the Stanford University they do internship in the Facebook. So there is this close collaboration between a data science team in the Facebook and uh, social science departments in Stanford. And though based on those kind of informal and, and uh, personal connections, they started to talk about, hey, why don't we connect the American National Election Study and Facebook data? Because by you know that you know uh, connection can provide a lot of you know, rich information. So that was that was how that was raised. But that wouldn't have happened to each you know single individual scholar's project. Hey, I would like to connect with your Facebook data, and the Facebook would say would definitely say no, right? So those kind of negotiation was possible because ANS is has a really long history, and it's a really established NSF-funded uh, pro- national project. So everybody you know knows the value of ANS and ANS data, right? And then so that was uh, an advantage for them to to leverage. Uh, during the negotiation with Facebook, and they made, there were some people in the Facebook who understand the importance of uh, uh, of that data fusion or data merge. So, I don't think no that every single researcher will have access to the, the data in Facebook or Twitter in the future. Uh, at least we need to have a really big, you know, huge project on which we can, you know, leverage on the negotiation power. So that's perhaps the most uh, realistic. Uh, way to get access to those data. Yeah, I do definitely agree with you. And I would just add from, from our discussion today that it became so apparent that the cultural aspect is super important and that uh, there are so many aspects in so many countries we do not know that much about because computational communication science is um, not... Um, or computational communication science as computer science might have a weird focus. Uh, so we, we focus very often on very specific platforms like Facebook and Twitter and specific countries yeah, like the US and US elections and um, a weird focus just to uh, yeah, define it short is referring to people from Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic societies who is interested in the problem. You can read it up, for example, in Henrich et al. 2010 in a paper called The Weirdest People in the World, who discussed this for behavioral sciences. So I think maybe expanding our focus is as well a solution to try to get more diverse data sources. What do you think? How do you perceive this as a scholar with an Asian perspective? I think that the global, the spread of the global social media platform is an opportunity. This is a huge opportunity for cultural studies because we are kind of like, you know, controlling the, the technological environment on Twitter. So, and then on, on that globally standardized platform, different people with different cultural backgrounds interact with each other. Right? So that is really kind of a good experimental control. The, the, the communication settings are controlled completely. Um, and then people behave differently. If they're people great, you know, uh, significantly uh, 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 different in, in terms of their behavior on Twitter between, let's say, I don't know, uh, Germany and, and in Japan, then we can more confidently say this, this is some cultural difference. But if you're just, you know, observing people's daily behavior, 
in a, in a workplace or in a family, well, well, German people and Japanese people might behave very differently, but is that cultural difference or institutional difference? Or what, what is the difference that is creating these uh, uh, differences? But on Twitter, we can basically standardize and set the environment uh, under control. And then people behave differently so that we can more you know, closely isolate the cultural difference on this global platform. So I think that's the, the opportunity. And that is exactly the reason why I guess the more, more and more cross-national or cross-cultural studies are being produced on Twitter and Facebook. And I think that's a really good sign. Um, and at the same time, data collection is becoming more and more uh, cheap and fast and easy, uh, like using Amazon, Amtrak, and other crowdsourcing services. So I have run uh, like a cross-cultural, cross-national experiments, exactly the same experiments in like nine or ten countries at the same time. So that kind of thing was completely uh, uh, impossible. 10, 10, or 10 or 20 years ago. So we are, you know, at the same time, we are getting more and more, you know, uh, uh, opportunities for, 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 for the collection of new types of data set. And then the so global social platform, I guess, is, a, is, a, is an opportunity. So, yeah, I agree. So most of the studies have been done in a weird, uh, like, uh, uh, countries, uh, European countries and North American countries, but, Twitter is very popular in, in, for instance, in Japan. Facebook is very popular in like Southeastern Asian countries. Those people, those you know, countries are more or less underrepresented in, in, in this literature. So, but now we have, we do have access even from outside those countries. That's something, so long as we can overcome the language barriers, we can, you know, uh, take a look into the, the new context. You, you make a very good point in that the global platforms also allow us to investigate more on a global scale to investigate different countries more easily however i would argue that to some extent also the increase of these organizations and platforms has also um probably added i don't know a, a t to the weird which is Destroying the, 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 the word, I know, but uh, I think there's also a, a bias, an increasing bias available in technologically affine respondents. Um, if we, if we collect data from Twitter, if we collect data through browser plugins that need to be installed, through apps that need to be installed, if we collect data, um, by data, through data donations, we are increasingly, I think, asking participants to be to have a, a, a certain level of sophistication in order to be able to participate in our studies. So in, in that sense, I, I agree with you that, that the technological advances have allowed us to open up and broaden our, our international perspectives. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, I have the feeling that we also limit ourselves to those that are capable of working with us. So introduce a new bias to some extent. Mm -hmm. Right, that might be a very important point. Because, for instance, when I did the mobile app study, uh, it was so it was not possible for for uh, you know an iPhone already because iPhone was more protective than Android. Perhaps it still is. Uh, but for Android, once they allow like an uh, uh, un, 
unknown, you know, unofficial apps to be installed. So this is basically one, you know, change of the setting. They could install any apps. Um, but as, you know, people are becoming uh, more and more privacy uh, minded, and then those protection is, you know, hurdle is becoming higher and higher, right? So there's a lot of warnings. Hey, this app is going to have access to your communication log, GPS data, and so on. And then people would be kind of pressured to give permission to those apps. Right? I think that that is a good kind of direction as a, as a whole, uh, as a society. But at the same time, for researchers asking for permission to get those data, uh, it might be becoming more and more difficult. So it's kind of the, the flip side of the widespread of the technology, right? So the, because now more and more people are using smartphones, the, the risk of giving permission to, to their data is widely realized. Oh, all of a sudden. So this is not a, you know, a small thing, you know. So we have to, you know, raise the bar for, for outsiders to get access to the data. And that's, I think, a good direction. But for researchers, it's becoming more and more difficult. How much can we or do we still trust our data knowing what we know today? Well, I generally speaking, I, I, I always doubt my data. So, because uh, even if it's like experimental data or survey data, I always doubt, did respondents really honestly uh, answer these questions? Uh, that should not be taken for granted in any case, I would say. So, even if the, even for the very basic, like, questions asking gender, let's say, well, if we have only two categories, so we didn't, you know, question that categories 20 years ago. Okay, so gender question, female or male, that's it, right? But now people are not even five down, years no, ago, right? No, right. <laughs> and then or now three, we are sometimes right, wondering whether these two categories, dichotomous measurement, is correctly capturing the concept that is gender, right? And the gender is a socially constructed con construct. So it, it's not if. If it's not a you know, biological difference that you're measuring, then you should be really careful. You should doubt the validity of that measurement. So, so there's no 100% trust in any kind of data. And of course, there are different levels of doubt. In recent Hong Kong, I'm, you know, I'm having more and more doubt uh, in terms of people's uh, like, uh, uh, honesty in answering the politically sensitive questions. So understandably, people are more concerned about revealing their true opinions about any political issues. So that's something uh, uh, deserve, something that deserved healthy doubt, right? From from the viewpoint of scholars, are, are they really, you know, providing revealing their true preferences or opinions? So I always doubt uh, data, whether this is a big data or small data, deep data or shallow data. And in that, I, I believe we are in need of more norms and standards also how to report new sources of data. We have a, a set of standards on how we report survey data. We always include the number of participants, standard errors, etc. But we don't have such a set of standards or norms for, for example, social media data. Um, so in order to allow us to trust data sources more thoroughly and to build our, our research more thoroughly on, on each other's research. I think we, for those newer, kind of newer data sources, um, we, we should work also on, on increasing the transparency about the data's validity, I think. 
So for the, the platforms, I guess, they don't really care about the mechanisms. So their ultimate goal is to maximize the profit. So long as the, the, some, you know, change of the, the interface works for, you know, increasing the profit, that should be fine. So that's really uh, uh, compatible with the notion of big data analysis. Based on the machine learning, if they can maximize the predictability or accuracy of prediction, like how, when, and when, how, and how people click the ad, that is fine. But that's not... The questions that many kind of social scientists uh, want to, to want to answer. Most of us are interested in not in the prediction itself, but in the kind of unpacking the mechanisms, how things are working. Um, so in that case, that you know, the combination of machine learning and big data might not be the, the most useful combination. So that's why I, I still believe that we need carefully designed uh, uh, data collection methodologies, such as you know. Yeah, surveys and experiments. So if I might summarize, data are complicated. <laughs> that might be <laughs> one of the learnings. Uh, but Definitely. Yes, Even when it comes the, to its article, right? Data is complicated? Data are complicated? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we still need to reflect on this maybe a little bit more. But we, we could include maybe stronger a cultural perspective and, and try to increase transparency and to make us maybe less or bring less dependent uh, from data companies or bring us in a better position with data companies maybe with a collaborative effort like research infrastructure or uh, yeah our own social network that we <laughs> build up um, and of course we should combine different data sources because in the end it is a huge opportunity that we have access to so many different data sources even though it's challenging to find out which ones uh, are the best to answer our research questions or which ones we can trust to which degree. Agrees so far? Yeah, completely agree. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a great kind of, yeah, and a healthy practice is that, you know, computational communication scholars like you are raising these questions. Right? So perhaps we have already passed kind of the, the stage one of the big data uh, kind of fad or hype and uh, so we are getting kind of we're calming down and okay now so what are these what are we doing with this data so obviously there are good news uh, good points and opportunity new opportunities but i think it's completely healthy and we should raise these kind of questions okay so what exactly are these data uh, uh, can be used for so yeah, I, 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 I definitely believe we should continue this line of argument and uh, uh, rather than just you know, passively receiving the data availability from the tech giants, we perhaps need to take more kind of proactive actions to, to, to expand the, the space of our uh, research practices and data collection. One of the reasons we're doing this podcast also is to kind of bring together um, different perspectives, bring together different voices, and hopefully to encourage some sort of collaboration and, and um, strengthening of, of, our, of our interests vis-à-vis um, -vis larger companies and, and data sources that um, I think have also themselves for themselves an interest in answering some of these uh, important research questions that we also so thank you very much, uh, Tetsuru, for, for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a really thank interesting perspective. Thank you for being with us. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you.
Great. And thank you also to you, the listeners, uh, for, for uh, listening and uh, following uh, through. And if you have any uh, suggestions for future topics, for future guests, um, for future questions we should tackle, please don't hesitate reaching out to us um, via Twitter, for example, or also via email. And um, we're looking forward to hearing you next time. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Take care. What is it about? Computational communication science?